it's like people are in their own realm and they can't really see beyond their places of maybe work or residence. And even when you talk about what is happening on the ground, they'll come and say, thank you for sharing. We don't want to be thanked for sharing. We want to hear people say they are going to take action. They are going to use their positions or their power or their resources to address the climate crisis. And you meet the same people at the next event and they're still talking about profit and not really acknowledging what you talked about before. Hello, this is Stan Stoniker back with another episode of the Hub Culture Chronicles. This time, we're the beautiful mountain town of Davos, Switzerland, for the World Economic Forum. But it couldn't be more different than the place and time when we first launched the Chronicles back in 2020 in the middle of a snowstorm. Today, as part of the Summer Davos Summer Campus, we're talking about climate and communication. The subject, on the front lines, but not the front pages. How can global media cover the reality of the climate crisis in the global south? And who's on this panel? Well, it's moderated by Sophie Lambin. She's the CEO and founder of Kite Insights. And joining her are two amazing climate activists. The first is Vanessa Nakate, who you may remember joined us at the Hub Culture Pavilion and the Ice House in 2020, along with Helena Siren Galinga. She's an Ecuadorian environmental and human rights activist, really working on the front lines. Now with them to talk about the conversation in the media is Sumini Singupta, the international climate reporter for the New York Times, and Peter Prangaman. He's the global climate and environmental news director for the Associated Press. Together, we're going to dive into the solutions. Hello, everyone. Good morning. For many of you, this is probably your final session at Davos, so we're going to make it worth your time. So the title of this session is On the Front Line, but not on the front pages. In the Congress Center today, there are a lot of very important conversations happening. Some of them revolved around legless torsos floating in the metaverse, but others are really around the threats that journalists are facing in reporting the truth, particularly in Ukraine. And the need to protect the freedom of press. But here today, our focus will be on media, but specifically on how it covers justice and equity when it comes to climate change. What is being done, what more can be done to ensure the coverage across the Global South is commensurate of the impact that it has on that part of the world. The reality is that indeed the impact and other climate stories from the Global South still don't get as much airtime as stories from the rich world. So the question we'll try to address today are threefold. On one hand, what are the issues journalists face, if any, when reporting on these issues through global media outlets? Two, is there some sort of undue burden on youth activists to report the truth about the global impact of climate change as they see it? And thirdly, should media and activists work together somehow to generate important climate stories? So to discuss this is my great pleasure to introduce my four panelists and I want to thank Helena for stepping in at the very last minute. We have climate journalists and climate activists. The truth is that climate journalists are not activists and climate activists are not journalists. But we thought it would be very interesting to bring these two worlds together. 
they certainly have in common a passion about reporting the truth and the impact of climate change. And I think we all recognize that whatever vantage point they're speaking from, this also takes some courage to do well. So welcome to all of you. If I can start by briefly introducing Vanessa. Vanessa, as Stan was saying, is a climate activist from Uganda and a founder of the Rise Up movement. Vanessa has recently been named Times Magazine 100 Emerging Global Leaders and one of the Financial Times 25 Most Influential Women in 2021. Somini Sengupta. Somini is the international climate correspondent for the New York Times and the lead writer for the Climate Forward newsletter. A recommended read. She has reported from the Himalayan glacier, a Congo River ferry, the street of Baghdad in Mumbai, and many places in between. Her first book, The End of Karma, Hope and Fury Among India's Young, was published in 2016. And she's also the recipient of the George Polk Award for Foreign Correspondence. Helena Walinga. Helena is an environmental human rights activist from Sarah Yuko community in Pastaza in Ecuador, and Helena exposes conflict between oil companies in local communities and the international community, and she's also the co-founder of Polluters Out. And last but not least, Peter Prengaman. Peter is the Associated Press Global Climate Environmental News Director, over overseeing the build-out of a team around the world of dedicated to stories about climate change, Peter has been with AP for more than 20 years and held several roles from State House reporter in Oregon to Bureau Chief in Brazil. Welcome, Peter. So, I have many questions and we have little time, so I'm going to keep the conversation fast-paced and hopefully allow for a few uh, Q&A. But let me start by saying it's undeniable that we've been seeing a shift recently in how the conversation about climate change has evolved. More than ever, the complexities and the interconnection of the crisis are coming to the fore. This year, for the first time in 30 years, the analysis of the IPCC acknowledged the role of colonialism in exacerbating climate coverage. So, Vanessa, if I start with you. Two years ago, you came to Davos your context was very different from today. And you were part of a global movement of young people who had turned out in the streets in their millions in 2019. What are your reflections on what the youth movement has been able to achieve in shaping this dialogue and encouraging this broadening of perspective around the climate agenda? Yes, movement has played a really huge role in creating awareness about the climate crisis and really communicating the science and what is happening in reality. Many times we find ourselves in places where it seems like people are disconnected from what is happening on the ground. But what I've seen with the youth movement, it has been able to say what is really happening. It has addressed the climate crisis as a crisis and as an emergency that really needs to be talked about and really needs to be addressed right now. It has made the different connections with colonialism and what is happening right now. It has explained how the climate crisis is affecting those who are least responsible for it. It has really laid out the different intersections of climate change and racial justice, gender equality. So I think that the youth movement has really done a great job in communicating the reality of the climate crisis the science of the climate crisis and also the stories and experiences of the communities that are on the front lines. Thank you, Vanessa. Helena, can you add to that your perspective? 
as Vanessa just said, of course, the youth movement has contributed a lot in raising awareness and changing the perspective of what climate change looks like and, and, and feels like. But there is, there is still a need in exposing the realities of what goes on the ground. And I think a lot has been done, but there is still a, a long way to go. I think that when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about biodiversity loss, we're not actually linking these issues to people sometimes. And we forget that these are human stories. And that's when storytelling is, is, is an essential part of that. And you can do that through social media, you can do that through mainstream media, through documentaries, to move, from movies, videos. There's so many ways of communicating those stories. But the important is communicating it. And there is a long way to go still. Thank you, Helena. Peter, if I come to you, how do you feel the conversation on the climate crisis has evolved in the wake of movements like the youth movement? I think youth activists have been very good at, at moving the ball with the discussions because there's a certain sense of urgency and, and also authenticity when somebody who's 20, 25 or 15 or, you know, says, hey, this is the planet that I'm going to inherit. And that's a really strong argument. So I think from a journalism perspective, we pay attention more and more to what young activists are doing. And, and young activists also are, are sometimes the front lines of telling us of stories because they're working in their communities. So they know firsthand of, of different things that are happening. Great. So Mini, if I can turn the same question to you. I started covering global climate issues about four years ago. And I really set out because of my experience having reported from over nearly 50 countries, mainly in Africa and Asia, over the last several years, I really set out to focus on where climate risks were being felt by people right now. And so I've been very impressed by the ability of young activists to bring their own stories forward and to persist to just really not let go. And for your extremely deft ability to use social media to get your message out, even when the pandemic made traditional activist tactics all but impossible. So it's undeniable that the work of young activists, climate activists, have not only pushed the story forward, as Peter said, in a really authentic way, but held, you know, the powerful to account. Great. So shifting the conversation to what, in your view, Vanessa, might still be the blind spot when it comes to climate issues, and maybe what kind of stories would you like to see organizations like AP and NYT bring more to the fore? I think the blind spot is really the need to talk about the stories of those on the front lines. And I think there's really a lack of representation in media, in conferences, when it comes to the people that are on the front lines of the climate crisis. For example, when you look at the African continent, it is on the front lines of the climate crisis, but it's not on the front pages of the world's newspapers. When floods happen in, in Germany, for example, we saw it in the news everywhere. But when floods happen somewhere in Africa, in a country in Africa, you won't see that being talked about. So I think there is still 
a lack of messaging and communication with media when it comes to telling the stories of those on the front lines and also amplifying the voices of the people in those communities. We know that every activist has a story to tell, but this story can only be amplified when platforms are given, it can only be amplified when the world is ready to listen. So there's still a lack in how stories are being told and experiences. And I think the other challenge that I've seen is putting faces on the climate movement. And it's important for people to know that the climate movement has more than one or two or three faces. When specific faces are put on the climate movement, it erases so many other voices. And we've had of experiences where people say, no, we want the same activists, we want the same people because they have spoken before. But everyone had a very first time of speaking at a conference, of doing a media interview. So there's really a need to welcome everyone in the climate movement through the media and through conferences, not just specific groups of people. Can I just add one thing? You know, I'm very pleased to say that if you look at the last few years of media coverage of climate issue, and it's the media observatory that looks systematically at the number of stories that are published, I'm very pleased to say that not only has that line gone up quite sharply, but leading the pack has been our team at the New York Times. And not just the climate team, but the entirety of the newsroom, our international desk reporters, our national desk reporters, our business reporters. We have all really zeroed in on this story because it's the story of our time. And I'm pleased to say that my colleague Latif in, in Kenya did a beautiful profile of you recently. I think it's important to recognize yeah. that the progress, the, 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 not just the progress, but just the centrality of this right. story. Peter, do you see a, sometimes a conflict, a challenge in reporting those stories, as Vanessa was talking about, but also in, in being truly inclusive in how you bring this diversity of voices? I think the youth movement sometimes is, is struggling with the sort of obsession on the iconic leader representing this movement when there's a, a great diversity of voices that needs to be heard. It's something that we're working on, I think, and getting better with. I would just say, you know, the AP and building out this team, we are putting people in India, in Indonesia, in Mexico. We have a correspondent we hired recently in Kenya. And so a real focus of the team of the AP and me personally is trying to get more of those stories to the forefront because we need to do that. And, 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 and do you have challenges in doing that? What are the tensions there? I don't think there are challenges. I mean, I think the biggest challenge for, for any news organization is resources, just making sure that you're putting enough resources where you need to, to cover these stories properly and to see them all equally. You know, when I was in, when I was based in Brazil, sometimes my colleagues would joke, they say, oh, I don't know, this flood happened or that happened, but it doesn't involve gringos. So who cares, you know, or we shouldn't, we shouldn't do it. Just kind of joking. And that's the wrong way to see things. We need to cover everything the way that we would cover it anywhere. And I think we're, we're really moving towards that at the AP, just like so many said, not just in our climate team, but in, in the AP in general. For example, the working group at the end of February, you know, the IPCC, we did 11 stories and we did one from every continent where we made a real effort to join the science with the people on the ground. And unfortunately, that was the first week of the Ukraine war, unfortunately, on lots of levels, but a lot of that just didn't get attention. And if you look at the other side from the 
perspective of the audience, what do you see in terms of interest of your audiences with those stories? I think that's a work in progress of trying to understand that. You know, there's a lot of analytics, a lot of things that we try to look at closely. But even if you get data that shows, ah, there's more interest in what happens in the States, I mean, I think it's on us as journalists to ignore that a lot of times and, and still do the stories of, of people on the ground. So, I mean, how do we make people care more about, about developing countries, about the global South? We, we have to do more and we have to do better. We have to tell the best stories that we can. And we have to tell the most urgent stories in the most human way possible, because that is our mission at The New York Times. It is to explain the complexity, the vastness of the world. On your audience question, two years ago, in the first few months of the pandemic, when there, was ex when there were extreme heat events in many parts of the world, we did a package called Inequity at the Boiling Point. And I was very pleased with this package for two reasons. It really made the case that climate change is one of the most profound inequities of the modern era. The ones who are least responsible for the problem are facing some of the most acute consequences. And two, I was very pleased because we were able to team up with photographers based in these countries. We did a package looking at the impact of extreme heat on ordinary people, one person in each place on each continent. And the audience, you know, it was, it was just a very engaging piece. And we heard from our readers and that they really appreciate it. Yeah, that. and we'll talk a bit about visualization. But Helena, I, I want to come to you. When we were um, briefly preparing before this panel, you said something really interesting. I thought about the sometimes how international media might underestimate how their coverage impacts your ability to bring this agenda locally. Can you talk a little bit to this point? Yeah, as, as you said, there is a, a, a huge importance of actually working with the people that are being affected by climate change, that are being affected by everything that's happening around. And we cannot keep telling these stories from a Western perspective. And I think that, unfortunately, that happens a lot. We can never tell an authentic story if the storyteller is not the person who has lived it in their and have felt all of these things. But you were also saying that, you know, the way the local media is covering this crisis, somehow of often course. they take their cue from how the international media is covering yes. that. And these stories sometimes get out to international media, to mainstream media. And unfortunately, that's the only time when the media within our own country start talking about it. So if something happens in my country, it would take you guys to report on it for me to see it the next day in the newspaper. So it's kind of working like we have to push it outside and then it's going to come back in. And ultimately, what's the only thing that's going to happen is that they replicate it. They will say there was this report in New York Times and then the story is not the story. It, the story is that there was something about Ecuador in the New York Times. So there is this huge gap, I guess, on what the media in our own countries is doing. And we are combating this, we're, we're kind of facing this, this misinformation, but also lack of information within our own countries and within our own populations. So how do we change that? Because 
people that already have access to international media that speak English, they're already reading all these things. It, it kind of comes up every now and then. But how do we reach every single corner in the world? People in the Amazon where I come from, they don't even know what's going on just two kilometers from where they live. That is a huge issue. That is people, you know, and, and that's the reason why these atrocities continue to happen because there is a misinformation and there is a lack of knowledge and, and information. So there is this need of cooperation with international media, with local media outlets, with national media outlets, and, 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 and create these stories together so that they can be displayed on, inter, on an international level, but that they also can get to the people that are closest to those people that have been affected in a yeah. country. Thank you, Elena. I think this is really interesting, Shomini Peter. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, so the, the ripple effect of your coverage on the local national media and, and how that can actually have an impact to the yeah. policies. Yeah, no, it's, what, what, you, what you say is, is really interesting. I saw this a lot in Brazil, particularly with the Amazon. Um, I can't say that Brazilians are not interested in the Amazon. I think, I think they are. Media in Brazil just don't cover the Amazon on a really big scale. And, and so sometimes we would do stories, you know, basic stories about deforestation or something happening. And there would be a story about, we did the story in local media, just like you said, and then, and then they would do a story. So that's not to say, I mean, the Brazilian press is very strong in, in other ways, but sometimes the interest of the audience isn't quite what you think it would be. I think there's more interest in the Amazon outside of the Amazon in some ways than, than in South America. Can I just say one thing? There, there are two things on my wish list, right? In the next five years, 10 years, what I'd really like to see is a creation of a really, truly global climate press corps, especially in the global south. I'd like to see many more Kenyan journalists, Ghanaian journalists, Zambian journalists, Bangladeshi journalists taking on this subject because it is the driving story of our time. And two, related, I think it's really important to subscribe to your local news organization, whatever that is. That's how you sh show your interest, your support, and that's how you make the work possible. So if you want more climate coverage, subscribe to the news organization, the public radio station, whatever it is that, you know, you feel like you can support, because that's what pays for the journalism. Great point. Uh, thank you for that. I just want to shift gear a little bit, talking about the way in which youth activists talk about climate. And, and I think they've been so compelling in combining an ability to, to talk about the facts with a lot of credibility, but also to talk about the personal experience and reaching you know, really global audience with, in effect, very little means. And I just want to ask you, and, and you know, that has really shone the line on, light on the importance of really good storytelling. And I just want to have your impression, uh, Peter and Sumini, on what has been the secret source in the way the youth activists have been able to mobilize the hearts and minds of people in the way they have shared the personal experience. Do we need more of that? I know so many. you've recently spoke to aspiring journalists about the importance of storytelling, climate storytelling. What are your reflections? What are some of maybe, I wouldn't say advice, but you know, things that you've observed about the, the way the youth communicate about the youth experience that you might want to share? 
I, I think for me, making it successful, whether it's, you know, from, from the standpoint of an activist telling the story or, or a journalist telling the story, is really making it about people. I mean, it, it starts and ends with people. And, I, you know, I came to this job, I've been with AP a long time and have had a lot of different roles. And, I, and I've covered a lot of climate environment over the years, which is partly what took me to this. But, but I also really consider myself a generalist. And the best stories are about people. It doesn't matter what the subject is. And so I think if there's one thing, like one secret sauce, it's that. It's to make the stories about people. And particularly when we talk about climate change, the stories who, you know, the stories about people who are impacted. As a journalist, I want to hear from, from you all about what's happening right now in the place where you are. And I, you know, I want you to take me there. I want you to tell me what's happening in, in good ways and bad ways, right? What is the problem? Who is standing in the way of progress? I want you to tell me what the impacts are. Who are the most vulnerable? And I would love for you to tell me what are some, some new ways of living? You know, what's being done to adapt? What's being done to hold the powerful accountable? I, just, I want you to tell me more stories. So now, if I turn to you, both uh, Helena and Vanessa, you hear Peter and, and so many talking uh, in this way. What do you want from them in your ability to tell those stories to make that possible? Yeah, I agree that stories are really important when we are talking about the climate crisis because climate change is more than weather and statistics. Many times people will hear numbers and then they're like, oh, okay, that's bad and life continues. But then when the numbers have stories attached to them and experiences, I think that helps really inspire people to do something in their communities and to just find a way to really help address the climate crisis as well. So for me, media has a huge responsibility to really cover the, the climate story because we saw with the pandemic, we, we had like daily information about the pandemic, you know, with the science and what was happening in the world, you know, who was the numbers that were being affected because of the pandemic. We were having like daily information on that. And I think it really helped drive even the governments to do, to take all those guidelines and put lockdowns and many people really they responded to that and they stayed at home. They started working from home, schools were closed. So I think media really played a very huge role during the pandemic to really help in you know, addressing the pandemic and overcoming it. So I think it's the same thing needed for the climate story. I know that a lot, like I know that there is progress in what media is doing, but much more needs to be done for it to be treated as the crisis that it is. Because we saw that with the pandemic through media, many people knew that this was really a crisis that needed to be dealt with immediately. So if we have the same thing with, you know, the climate crisis, I believe that, you know, many people around the world would feel like they need to do something. They need to make necessary changes as soon as possible to address the crisis. And the other thing is, you know, to really, again, it goes back to the stories of the people on the front lines. I think they are really important and there is a huge responsibility on media to really help amplify those stories. 
But what I'm hearing from, uh, and Helena, I'd like you to comment as well, I'm hearing from Somini is you are after stories of also action, you know, not just raising the issues and, and the, the degradation of the climate and hiding back people, but what people are doing about it. And Helena, uh, uh, do you feel that you have access to the media to tell those stories and to, for those stories of action? Because that, that's what we need to talk about as well, not just the issues, what, what can be done. Of course, I think a, a huge part of storytelling is not only exposing, and I say this often, it's not only to expose the pain and the, and the harm that has been done, but it's also in, in telling the beauty and, and the beautiful stories and what people in each region are doing to combat these things. And there's so many of those stories of, of women fighting deforestation, of protecting lands. There's so many beautiful stories to tell and they're everywhere. We just have to look and uh, look in the right places and be open to sharing those stories. I think you, you said something that you want to know what's happening, right? And and I think that's super important that having that openness to to what is actually going on. In my area, we have a lot of issues with oil companies. And and yesterday, I think it was yesterday. I wish I had the quote he, right here, but the president of of my country said, "Now that everyone is becoming sustainable and they're going to leave the fossil fuels behind, we need to make sure that we take the lead and we're going to exploit every single drop of oil in this country." But then they can go to places you know, at COP and they're going to they're gonna do some things and people are going to applaud them. And Ecuador is, every time I talk about Ecuador, people will tell me, oh, you're one of those environmental leaders as a country, right? And then I go back home and I'm like, what environmental leaders? What's happening here? Of course, indigenous people have been the environmental leaders within our countries. That doesn't mean that the people that run the country have been. And that is really important. And I think that is, is when we're talking about climate change, and I said this earlier, when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about who is protecting these lands, what is being done to protect the climate and the forests. There is this direct correlation between indigenous people and what's being protected. And we have these very powerful statistics of indigenous people being 5% of the world's population and protecting 80% of the world's biodiversity. There are many powerful statistics like that. I think most, most people in this room have heard that statistics before. But there are many, many, many statistics like that but they're just not being shown. And we need to make sure that those things are shared widely and, and actually see, okay, we, here we have the statistics and here we have the reality. Here we have the people, here are the people that are experiencing it. So, you know, making sure that people can really see and feel what's happening. You no, know, one thing that you mentioned is really interesting about beautiful stories and hopeful stories. And when it comes to audience, those stories really resonate. I often ask myself three questions in this job, like who's not paying attention to climate change news? Why are they not paying attention to climate change news? And how can we engage with them, right? And there's no one answer to that, but one of the many answers is stories on solutions, stories that are hopeful, because all the doom and gloom, it's natural sometimes for people to want to turn away from that. Now, as a news organization, we have to cover it all, right? We can't shy away from anything, the good, the bad, the ugly. But when we can show things that are positive and hopeful, that, that resonates. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I, I describe, especially for the newsletter, for Climate Forward, we try to show you the world as it is and the world as it can be. And so the stories of what people are doing is an example of the world as it can be. I want to ask both of you, what are you hearing this week? 
What have you heard? What's your assessment? How are you feeling leaving? Well, for me, what I've really had this week, it has been mainly about economic growth. It has been mainly about GDP, technology, and all that. But I haven't really heard about the communication of the climate crisis. And I must say that it has been quite frustrating, you know, to be in places or events where it seems like people are so disconnected from what is happening on the ground. And everyone is talking about business and profit without really acknowledging what is the reality. I know that the reality is hard for people to take in, but then if it is hard for someone to hear it, then how bad is is it for the person experiencing it? That is much worse. So what I've really had this week, it's less of what we should do to address the climate crisis, but more of how we are going to increase our profits and our GDP. And I believe that if we want to address the climate crisis, people have to come first before the profits. When we prioritize profits over people, we are talking of destruction, we are talking of ecosystem loss, we are talking about loss and damage, things that are already happening right now. So there's really been a disconnect of what is happening on the ground. It's like people are in their own world, in their own realm, and they can't really see beyond their places of maybe work or residence. And even when you talk about what is happening on the ground, they'll come and say, thank you for sharing. I mean, it's not like I was sharing food or something. I was telling you the reality. So we don't want to be thanked for sharing what is happening on the ground. We want to hear people say they are going to take action. They are going to use their positions or their power or their resources to address the climate crisis. So that's what I've really seen, people coming and saying, thank you for sharing, you're so inspiring. And you meet the same people at the next event and they're still talking about profit and not really acknowledging what you talked about before. And then the other thing that I've really seen here is that there is so much concern about the national security issues and concerns of the West. And no one is talking about the national security concerns of the global South. So this place looks like it's making discussions and conversations for the whole world. But in fact, it feels like the global North is the whole world. So all most of the discussions are about how we're going to protect the security concerns of the West. And no one is talking about the Eastern Africa drought that is leaving over 20 million people with no access to food. No one is talking about how indigenous communities are being impacted by the climate crisis. So it's really, it's been frustrating, I should say. I'm not going to say thank you for sharing, Vanessa, but thank you. Helena. I think Vanessa put it perfectly. And I think I have also been hearing about, as you said, economic growth and crypto and a bunch of things. And every time I talk about these issues, 
have this question like, of course, this is affecting you. And for example, us as investors, you know, of course we want to change, but how can we make sure that that change still benefits us? And the first time I got that question, it was cold. I, I didn't know how to react because I thought to myself, you can only change your horrible behaviors if you're going to benefit from that. And so in this space, we keep justifying the human right violations and the atrocities that happen in our territories and the, that happen in the global south with economic growth, with a successful company. And to me, that is insane. It's completely insane. And how normalized it is in these spaces. They have the face to come and say to me, how can this still benefit me? If I stop harming you, how can you benefit me? Let that sink in. It's, it's, you know, in general, there is so little participation of people that are actually affected by everything that goes on here. All the conversations that go on here. There's so many people with so much power to change. And some have these questions, you know, like, okay, so how can we change or what are we supposed to do? And all of these people have the power to. And the question is just, why haven't they? They have the time, they have information, they have the technology. There's just too little effort to make that change happen. And there are no commitments. And as Vanessa was saying, you're inspiring and thank you for sharing and all of that. But then they go home and they forget about it and there are no commitments and there are no improvements. And I don't think we quite realize how concentrated power is here yeah. and how that is affecting everyone in, 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 in our, back in our countries. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems that the youth movement carry a huge burden of responsibility, which is taking a, quite a big emotional toll of, of, on them as well to convey those messages. What are your thoughts, uh, Somini and Peter, on that? I mean, why is it the youth that always feel that burden of responsibility to tell this kind of message? So if I reflect on, on Davos this week, this is my first time here, so I can't compare to discussions before. I will say a couple of things. One, like before it started, I ranked all the panels. There were 270 some panels. And I came to the conclusion that more than 90 were about climate change in one form or another. So I guess not to push back much on what you're saying, but I would say a little bit that those discussions are happening. Now, to your point, are they really happening about the people who are impacted? Are they happening beyond the economic pieces of things or beyond the technology of, say, green steel or carbon capture? Not enough. Not enough. I say that for sure. But I do think the fact that you guys are here, both of you were on panels yesterday that I listened to and learned a lot from. I mean, I think little by little, that's a way to get those messages out. So it's not perfect, but what's the alternative, you know? I mean, you guys are, are really pushing things, and I think that's positive. So, Mini, we have very little time left, but what, what, how do well, we bridge that say, disconnect? I don't, I don't want to take up more time, but all I want to say is help us tell the story of the world as it is and the world as it can be. Great. Well, we're coming to an end, but there's a key question I want to ask you, Vanessa. You have campaigned a lot for loss and damage finance in... UN climate negotiation and that there is a demand for the most historically polluting countries to really send money to the most impacted countries for the destruction that they are experiencing. 
I can now announce that you have been recognized as the Hillary Institute 2022 Hillary Laureates. And the Institute is planning to support your work on loss and damages. And can you tell me how the Institute is planning to help you to put pressure on leaders to create a fund for loss and damage at COP27? It's really an honor and thank you to the Institute. I believe that the Institute is really going to support me telling the different stories when it comes to loss and damage in the different communities in my country and communities across the African continent because loss and damage is something that really needs to be discussed. I remember being on a panel where I was trying to explain loss and damage and what it means for communities and how it's about loss of cultures, you know, loss of histories. And then the person asking the questions is like, but if you talk about loss and damage and the need for a compensation fund for loss and damage, then you're taking us back to the past. And then I'm like, but loss and damage is not in the past. It's happening right now. There is a need for the countries in the West to really put in place a compensation fund for loss and damage, you know? So it's something that I believe is going to be a very strong moment of communication even as we head towards COP27, which is going to be in Africa. There's really a need for everyone to come on board and highlight the impacts of the climate crisis across the African continent, across the global south, and the losses and damages, and the need for climate finance, for not only for mitigation and adaptation, but also a compensation fund to be put in place for loss and damage. Can I just add something to that? Please. It should not be people that are affected by these things asking for that. This is a historical debt to the communities that are the most affected by climate change. This is a legacy of everything that has been done to the global south. I'm just going to leave it there. Thank you. I think, unfortunately, we have no time for more questions. I had many more to share with you, but I think I will finish with what Michael Mann said, uh, the climate hub that the New York Times hosted in Glasgow last November. And he was saying, for him, the new climate war is harder's division around how to take action. And delay is the new denial, I thought was an extremely interesting perspective that he brought. So really the focus on the need for systemic action and not deflecting the responsibility on individual action and the part that media youth activists is playing in in pushing that message is critical. So I just want to thank you very much for your contribution. I'm just now very conscious about saying thank you for sharing, but thank you for sharing your perspective. And I think we all leave compelled to take action at a systemic level. So thank you so much.